Hi there, and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Joseph Cacharo. What's going on? Um, what's going on is well, a lot. Um, I mean, for starters, there are still ongoing protests around across North America, protesting police violence, and in response, police continue to be violent. Uh, several of these cities uh, are just continuing to increase the presence of military police. Protesters are still being beaten up, shot at, in some cases killed. Um, and we still, you know, as we talked about last episode and nothing has changed, we still have a significant problem with systemic racism. And I think, you know, today we're going to talk about the fact that the NBA has passed a return to play plan uh, to get back up and running again in July. Um, but I think it's important that we acknowledge that all this stuff uh, that we've been talking about in the past few days uh, continues to be a serious, serious problem. And um, I think for us, for our listeners, uh, it's important that we not let that fade from the spotlight or from the forefront of our minds. And so I would encourage people to continue paying attention, speaking out, uh, you know, donating to their local Black Lives Matter chapters and supporting Black-owned businesses, writing to their elected officials to demand police reform, uh, and just otherwise, you know, contributing to the cause in whatever way that they can. Yeah, I think that's well said. And, and that's kind of what I was thinking too. You know, I, I think it's important to let our listeners know that, yeah, like we're getting back to talking basketball and, you know, there's going to hopefully be basketball played in a month and a half or so. And we'll be talking about that and, and covering that because that's our job. But that does not mean in any way, shape or form that we're going to ignore, you know, the continued problems out there. We'll get into this as we start talking about this plan and the questions that we still have about it. But there is still a global pandemic that yeah. is tearing its way through uh, the entire world. And that includes the United States. Like the rate of spread uh, in many, many states has not slowed down at all. And Florida is one of those states. So I think we should still be skeptical about this return plan. And I, I mean, we just haven't gotten a ton of information from the league about the data that they have seen that uh, allowed them to feel comfortable going ahead with this plan and doing so in a way that they feel, I guess, is going to be manageable while keeping everybody involved safe. I, I mean, I'll, I'll just start off the top by saying, and I'm sure anybody listening already knows this, but the NBA Board of Governors voted in a 29 to 1 vote to approve the proposal involving 22 teams playing eight regular season games with a potential play-in for the eighth seed, followed by a full postseason slate uh in they, they don't want to call it a bubble they're calling it a campus environment in disney world and i would just caution that a ton can still happen between now and july 31st which is the the date that they agreed on to actually restart and even if they do restart on july 31st a ton can happen between them and what was the final date that they set like october 12th i, I believe yeah i believe october 12th is the last potential day of the finals Right. So I think a lot of people are going to be excited about this. Uh, I don't know if excitement is the feeling that I am feeling right now, just given all the concerns I have and everything else that's going on in the world. But obviously, and you know, because 
it is my job and something I'm very passionate about. Like if and when it does come back, I will be watching and I'm sure I'll be excited about it as well. But um, I just think that, you know, there are still a lot of questions and concerns uh, about this plan. So I don't know. Where do you want to start, Cash? Um, for one, I think it's interesting. Uh, you mentioned the 29 to 1 vote. It actually was, I can't remember who reported it, but uh, Portland was the lone team against it. So, right. you know, we don't know if, if they were against the 22 teams and preferred a smaller play-in format because they, I believe, are tied for ninth in the West. So they would have been involved in a 20-team format. They would have been involved if it was only like a two or three-team play-in for that eighth spot. Or who knows, maybe maybe they voted against it and, and as an organization just don't want to be there at all, which is fully within their right. Not a lot has changed over the last couple months in a lot of the things we already discussed, like just the plain logistical nightmare of of making this happen while keeping 22 teams and everyone involved in those traveling parties safe. Look, they're going to test everyone who's in the bubble or sorry, the campus uh, atmosphere is going to be tested every day. If If a player tests positive, they're going to be removed from the bubble, treated separately, but the league will play on. And so you know, I think it's entirely possible and, and forget possible, likely there's going to be positive tests. I, I, like I'm at the point, if there, if there are zero positive tests, given the amount of people that are in that environment for two plus months, I, I think we should all be skeptical of that. And, and I don't think that's going to be the case. I think there are going to be positive tests. You know, how, how does that impact the league? It, it, obviously, from a big picture and grand scheme of life um, point of view, one person being better at basketball than the other doesn't make them any more valuable at all. So I don't want anyone to conflate what I'm about to say with that. However, from a strictly NBA perspective or how it affects a season, how it affects a playoff series, you know, if a ninth man that was going to play six minutes test positive and, and has to miss a couple games, again, in the grand scheme of life, awful. But from an NBA perspective, I think a lot of people, unfortunately, would just shrug that off. It's like, okay, well, injuries happen in the playoffs. Anyway, this guy was playing six minutes a game, whatever. But, you know, LeBron James, just because he's more durable from an athletic standpoint than the other players in the NBA doesn't make him any less susceptible to contracting this virus. So if LeBron James has to be removed from the bubble for even a few days and misses two games in the friggin' NBA finals like that, that is a completely different thing we're talking about here. And also I've seen a lot of people talk about the like one or two superstars getting it. Well, it's like, what happens if, you know, it starts spreading and one day six guys on the same team test positive. You can't play on. The plan is to play on and just remove the people affected from the bubble and, and treat them. Well, what if half a team is affected? Then what do you do? They, do they forfeit that game? Look, I, I, I do. I trust in the fact that they are going to do whatever they can while they're to keep people safe and that they're going to take the steps they need to take, like testing every day. Sure, that's great. But I, I'm still so skeptical that they can actually pull this off without running into the like... Th- 3,000 logistical nightmares we've talked about over the last two months. You and I wrote a piece yesterday, essentially just outlining some of our takeaways and the questions that we still had about this proposal. And I think that's a big one. Like that's maybe the biggest question I have right now is the NBA has made a big show of saying, if one person tests positive, we're not going to shut this thing down. We're just going to isolate, quarantine that person. And they're planning on testing everybody daily, it sounds like, anyway. So I guess they trust that they can quarantine one person, test everybody else and and make sure that it hasn't spread beyond that. Uh, That just seems wholly unlikely to me that they would have one positive case and no others. And I I just can't help but wonder like what the threshold is. One person isn't going to be enough to stop the season. Is two people, is three people, is it four people? Do they have a number in mind where it becomes untenable? And the other thing, I guess, is like, 
and I mentioned this on a previous episode, I think, I think they need to allow themselves some time. Like if they get a positive test, I feel like they are, they need to be able to put things on pause until they can administer and analyze the tests of what is going to be, at least in the early stages of this, hundreds of people. And I don't actually know how long exactly that's going to take, but it doesn't seem safe to me to get a positive test, quarantine that person, and then go on as if it's business as usual, not knowing whether there are other spreaders inside this. I'm just going to call it a bubble. I don't really give a shit. Inside the bubble. It's a bubble. It's a bubble. I trust that the NBA is taking this extremely seriously, but I think it's important to recognize that it's not just like a group of players who are going to be at risk here. Like the NBA is responsible for its players, its coaches, its referees, camera people, media people, um, and also a bunch of uh, essentially like service personnel who are going to be working in hotels, um, who are going to be serving food who are going to be operating transportation vehicles and, and those people are going to be at risk as well. And I just, you know, maybe the details are forthcoming, but as of now, the NBA hasn't laid out a plan or contingencies uh, discussing essentially how it plans to keep all of those people safe. Yeah. And, and again, like, just to be frank, I don't think they can. When you were listing off the dates there at the beginning too, I'm not sure. I can't remember now if you listed any of like the off-season related stuff, but I did just want to add in case you hadn't that Shams and Woj and a bunch of other people are also starting to tweet the the proposed dates for the off-season as well. It's like we'd have draft lottery August 25th, the draft itself October 15th, free agency October 18th, which would be six days after a potential game seven in the finals. And then in terms of next season, uh, you'd be looking at a December 1st start date, so not the Christmas uh, start that a lot of people envision. And also training camp would be expected to start on November 10th. So you're looking at a total of a four-week offseason from mid-October to almost mid-November, not not quite mid-November. Um, you want to talk about logistical nightmares, even outside of the logistical nightmares related to health. That, that in itself could be a logistical nightmare. Like a four-week offseason is pretty insane. I get that it's definitely going to be a lot easier to navigate that this year. Um, given that in general, like if you looked at the way free agency was shaping up and the offseason in general and teams at it, so like this was probably going to be one of the quieter offseasons we've seen in recent memory. So I think it's a lot easier to navigate that. But even still, even in a quiet offseason, a four-week offseason... For a league as big as the NBA, with as many moving parts as exist in the NBA, uh, um, that that seems batshit crazy. And right, it'll be really interesting to see how that happens. And and yeah, I mean, we went from by the time the season starts, you know, almost five months between meaningful NBA games. We're gonna go from that to almost about fourteen straight months of NBA action in some form. Yeah, and I think you know the, the abbreviated off season, and especially like the abbreviated window between when the finals theoretically would be wrapping up and when free agency would start. I mean, I assume that the players' union and the owners are going to have worked out some sort of. I mean, are they going to just tear up the existing CBA and write a new one? Like there, and this is something you mentioned in the past as well, but like the eight teams that aren't playing these remaining eight regular season games. um, I mean, they're not going to reach the 70 game threshold at which they've honored their local TV contracts. So 
as it is, I think the league is going to have to come up with some sort of revenue sharing model where those eight teams aren't just being left behind. And I think that's a given. Otherwise, those eight boards of governor, board of governors would not have voted for this proposal if they didn't have some assurance that they were going to be taken care of. Uh, and that goes for those players as well, right? Because as you've mentioned before, I mean, players get playoff bonuses, but their their salaries are tied to regular season games. And as it is, every player has essentially had 25% of their salaries held by the league uh, in accordance with the force majeure clause. So I think I'm sure these conversations are ongoing, but for one thing, they're going to have to figure out how that revenue sharing model is going to work for the remainder of this season. And then they're going to have to figure out what the revenue structure is going to look like next year. They're going to have to figure that out ahead of time because I don't think there's going to be enough time for them to do a full accounting uh, and essentially create um, a salary cap and a luxury tax line for next season in the few days between when the finals ends and free agency starts, you know, enough time for players to do their due diligence and decide whether they're going to opt in or out of the final years of their contracts, for instance, um, and, and figure out what they're going to be worth on the open market. It's just, it's going to be a shitstorm. I don't know if there's any other way to say that, but I think the important thing is that the, the Players Association and, and the league have those parameters more or less in place uh, before we get to that point. A few of the people I follow uh, that really know the ins and outs of the cap and, and BRI and that stuff, I think the projections I saw were that the, the NBA coming into the year projected for $8 billion. And I assume that would be in revenue. Yeah. And that based on the current format that they're now putting forward for the restart of this season, they'd be looking at somewhere in the range of 6.8 to 7 billion instead. So you're looking at a 1 to 1.2 billion dollar loss or I guess not loss but shortfall, you know, based on their original projections. And then just in terms of, you know, some of the logistics we were talking about with the schedule and the short offseason, you were mentioning the way the the league is going to have to figure out how to make up for some of that revenue and and the revenue sharing that's going to have to go to some of those teams, especially the eight teams not included in the bubble. I think the, the main goal for the NBA should be and probably is to get back to some semblance of normalcy, whatever that means, by the 2021-2022 season. And the NBA has been talking about that season for a long time. That's their 75th anniversary season. When the, the first reports of a potential midseason play-in tournament came in, you'll remember it was originally reported that Adam Silver wanted it for that season because it's a 75th anniversary season and the NBA really wants kind of like to make a bang in that season. So I think in general, if we're talking about the league and revenues and even the schedule returning to some sense of normalcy, I think that's probably what we're looking at. Next season isn't going to start till December and that would probably take it into July and the revenues will still be a bit warped. And then I think the season after that, 2021, 2022 is when I would imagine we get something close to what we're used to as NBA fans. And also, I think that's interesting because that lines up, of course, with this absolutely mammoth 2021 free agency class that in its own way is probably going to reshape and almost reset the league. So I, I really feel like this next season and a half is very, very much going to be like a, a period of transition for the NBA and that 75th anniversary season, obviously this is not the way they planned for them to get there, but will right. almost be like a, a season of rebirth, if you will, kind of like a new way forward for the NBA. Definitely a lot still up in the air. I think as far as uh, creating a salary structure for next season, the probably the most logical proposal I've seen was the one that John Hollinger put out there, which is essentially just to maintain the salary cap and luxury tax lines exactly where they were this season. 
because I think it's just going to be impossible to project. Like you can't project revenue for next year based on the revenue uh, that the that the league took in this year, just because the season's been shortened. Some teams are going to play, you know, sixty four or fewer games. Obviously, the rest of these games and the playoffs are going to be played without fans, and we don't know how many how much of next season is going to be played in empty stadiums. So I think it's just impossible to project. And probably the best way to do that is to maintain uh, the exact same salary cap structure, but hold more of the player salaries in escrow. Usually it's 10%. You can bump that up to 20, 25%, 30%, whatever uh, you deem acceptable or, you know, whatever agreement you can come to with the players association. And if by the end of the season, the revenue exceeds, what they expected, then some of that escrow can be paid back. And if they don't, then it won't. But I think in the interest of, you know, not having a huge salary cap dip and then another huge salary cap spike, I think this would be a way to sort of smooth it out that uh, would be maybe a pretty good compromise between the league and its players. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Score's MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. I think we've touched on like the, the health and safety concerns already, and you know we've dealt with the specific dates and all that. But in terms of the playoff race itself, for me, I feel like, well, the safest course of action definitely would have been just going straight to the playoff. Well, safest course of action is probably you don't come back at all. But if they're right. going to come back, um, going straight to the playoffs, they end up inviting six extra teams. Washington and Phoenix basically have no business being there. But for me, I think if they were going to go this route, I think... I have a question way- for you, though. Why Why do you think those teams ended up there? Like, who was pushing See, for that outside of those that, two teams? That's what I don't understand because... You know, I don't know, you you wrote about it as well in our takeaways. Like, obviously, the league wants Zion to be part of this. And I completely understand that. Like, I'm not even cynical about that. I think it's completely understandable that they wanted that to be the case. But it's not like the Pelicans were six games back, and therefore they set this arbitrary number. Because, like, well, this is the way to get Zion. And it's like, were they that obsessed with getting Bradley Beal and Devin Booker in this? Thing? Like, I, it doesn't make any sense. Right. Me. And so you get a 29 to 1 vote you still could have passed this with a 27 to three vote. Like why was it so important to pander to those two teams? Again, you said like the, these sort of cutoffs are pretty arbitrary. The six game cutoff is arbitrary and clearly meant only for the purposes of including those two teams. Cause the wizards are five and a half out of a playoff spot and the Suns are six out. And, and then you have this other arbitrary cutoff where it's like, if you're within four games, if you're the nine seed and you're within four games of the eight seed, then you get to play this little play-in tournament. It's not really a tournament. It's not a tournament, yeah. It's like, uh, I mean, the best way I can explain it is like King's Court in tennis, if you've ever played. Nice, yeah, yeah, that's great. You know, if you're the king, you only have to win one point and you stay the king. If you are challenging the king, you ought to win two points in a row and then you get to be the king. So that's how it works, essentially. Uh, If you're the ninth seed, you have to win twice in a row against the eighth seed to get in. So... Cutting it off at four games gives the Wizards some hope that, you know, they're five and a half back, I think, of Orlando for the eighth seed right now. They can make up two games 
and get themselves into that mix. I, the Suns, I guess, also only have to make up two games, but they also have to leapfrog four teams in order to do so. I just don't see why it was necessary to bend over backwards for these teams that, based on a pretty large sample of regular season games, didn't have any business being in the playoff picture. Me neither. The only thing I was going to say is that I do like the fact that, because, you know, originally when we were starting to see some of the reports coming out, it was play-ins and stuff like that. I just thought that was unfair to the eighth seeds. You can laugh all you want, especially in the East, about how, you know, terrible it is and whatever. But like, you know, if, if that's the rule, if the top eight make the playoffs and you were in eighth, it, it seemed unfair to me that then you would have no better of a chance to make the playoffs than the teams that were ninth, 10, 11. Like you finished ahead of those teams. So I do like that they did find some sort of happy medium where it's like, you know, the teams that had not been eliminated really and, and could have still made some kind of run except for Washington and Phoenix are given a chance to make that run in eight games. You know, if you're only going to make up a couple to get into ninth, eight games, I think is a decent runway. So they gave those teams a chance, but they still gave Memphis and or- Orlando's an eighth, right? Not Brooklyn. Yeah, Orlando's an eighth. They yeah, still Orlando, gave... but they're they're a half game behind Brooklyn and yeah. Brooklyn is playing without Kyrie and right. KD, we assume the rest of the way, so... But but I like that they did still give those teams clinging to eight right now or whoever's in eight at that time the inside track because I do think they deserve that as arbitrary as it is and as you know as much as they will likely be cannon fodder for the top seed in their conference they still do deserve that inside track that they had played sixty plus games to earn. This is something I mentioned is like how are the tiebreakers going to work? Um, and I think that's especially pertinent. Uh, in the West because the Blazers have played more games than anybody else in that race. And specifically, they played two more games than both the Kings and the Pelicans, which means that if those three teams or any two of them, um, or any one, I'm sorry, the Kings and the Pelicans end up tied with the Blazers, they'll be they'll be tied. I guess I'm putting that in air quotes. They'll be tied in terms of win-loss differential, but the Blazers will be like fractions of percentage points ahead in terms of win percentage. And it will merely be because they played two additional games and went like one and one in those two additional games. So will that be considered a tie that will revert then to the NBA's typical sort of tie-breaking order of operations, which is head-to-head record followed by intra-division record followed by intra-conference record? Or will they just give that spot to Portland? That's a big question. Uh, technically, even if it's fractions of a percentage point, like the team that's ahead in winning percentage is the team ahead, you know? Like that's why they use winning percentage because it, you can play an uneven number of games and, and still know who's ahead. So, Which means that Portland is actually, they're not actually tied in the standings with New Orleans and Sacramento. I don't know. I guess this is a pretty broad question, but how do you see this playing out? Predictions-wise? Yeah, I mean, like... Who like, you mean, think, like, how do I... Do you think... No, like, let's leave aside, like, the myriad health and safety concerns that we okay. both have. Do you think there's any team that sort of benefits the, from this, like, any more than any other team? Um, and and does any of this change your opinion or what whatever your prediction might have been before the season got shut down for how all this might play out? Not, not really, Um I picked the Lakers to win at the beginning of the year. Uh, I'm still confident. Not, well, I shouldn't say confident. I don't think they have like a greater than 50% chance of winning, but I still would pick them to win it. I still think the Clippers are the biggest threat to them, and I would take the Lakers or the Clippers against any East team in the finals. I still think Milwaukee and Toronto are going to be in the East finals. One thing I did consider, and it's funny because Milwaukee would have had home court in a series against Toronto, and as you know, I was going to pick Toronto. And 
what's interesting based on sorry based on the uh the proposals we saw out there for how teams can generate a home court advantage they might literally have home court in that series <laughs> right because the the reports are that teams want to be able to bring their literal home court the hardwood with them another you know another idea was them potentially um picking which hotel the opposition stays in or something but no yeah. what i was going to say i want to restart this podcast actually and only talk about that purpose if anyone hasn't seen like these proposed <laughs> solutions i believe dave mcmenamin reported it for espn it's truly wild um one of them as you just mentioned it involves teams literally flying out their actual home court to orlando and my question about that is like okay so if you're the team with home court and you're allowed to fly out your actual home court so you can lay it down and play on like your home court with your logo does that go for the entirety of the seven game series or do you know, switch man. back and forth in like a 2 2 one, one, one Not only that, but... The way there, that you would otherwise. Not only that, but there are only two courts that are going to be in use. So right. if, say, so you you'd say... be changing it over. Right. If, even if you say, okay, we're not going to worry about this till the playoffs. Well, in the first round, one court is probably going to have, like, have two games in a day. So, I mean, I guess one thing they could do is like ensure... Uh, ensure that the Bucks and the Lakers wouldn't play in the same court the same day because they're both the one season. They, but then, you know, in that report, it says that the teams that would have had home court in the first round all want to do that. So you'd be looking at having to change the courts in a matter of hours. And I know it's been done in arenas like Staples Center, for example, where they've had a, a, the Lakers or Clippers have a game the same day as the Kings. It doesn't happen often, but it does happen once in a while. And they, and they have to go from ice to court in a few hours. That stuff's pretty rare. If they have to do that every day, you know, you talk about the logistical nightmares involved. That seems like one. So I don't think that's going to pass. It needs a two-thirds majority to pass. That's not passing. Nor do I think the, them being able to choose what hotel the opponents... <laughs> like, all of this is ridiculous because they're all staying in the Disney World Resort. Like, there are a number of hotels within the Disney World Resort, but... Uh, I got news for you and to anyone who's seen the prices to go to Disney World, you probably understand this already, but there are no like one star motels in <laughs> Disney World. Okay, like what do you think you're accomplishing? I want to know which team and which governor, which owner put this idea forward because like do they actually believe if they they make their opposition stay at like the 10th best out of 10 hotels at the resort or however many are there, that's actually a disadvantage? I guess the only disadvantage would be perhaps it would make the teams have to pick up and move hotels and maybe that would create some, like, I don't know. I don't know, but I think it's, it's ridiculous. It's laughable. There was the report as well that the higher seed should be able to pick a player who gets to play with seven fouls. Like, are you absurd? This is, we're not going to change the entire rules of basketball or the NBA for this like two month collection of bubble boys coming together and playing basketball. Like yeah, that's not what I we're doing. I think like all, all the governors who, who proposed any of those ideas should have to put their names to them. Agreed. I, I want names. They should be shamed. Um, but, but so yeah, I don't think there's going to be any solution to the, to the lack of home court advantage. No, and I don't think but, that's the biggest deal in the world. I don't either. But going back to the, the question you had originally asked and, and kind of how I got to the home court, what I was going to say is it's funny. So in the East, for example, you know, I think I would have leaned to the upset uh, with the Raptors beating Milwaukee. And the funny thing is, is that even though Milwaukee would have had home court, part of that would have been, that I am more confident in the Raptors getting a win in Milwaukee at some point in the series than I am in Milwaukee getting a game in Toronto. 
And the interesting thing is that even though Milwaukee is a team with home court advantage, that's an example where I actually think the neutral site might benefit a team like, or whoever the higher seed is that you might've picked to be upset. Because while you're eliminating the whole home court advantage thing, you're also eliminating it for the, the lower seed that would have had it three games as well. And you put it in a neutral site environment and it, you know, you could look at it as the better team should just win, right? And and that's one of the things even I argued in our takeaways post, one of the reasons I think there should be no asterisk on this year's champion, assuming no superstar misses the finals due to the, the coronavirus or something. But one of the reasons I think there should, there should be no asterisk because I actually think it's more impressive to win four best of seven series in a neutral site environment mm-hmm. than I do in the usual format. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with you and say that... Not not about the asterisk. I think you're 100% right on that point. But I don't see... like Teams play better at home. So I think it's just clearly a disadvantage for the teams that would have had a home court advantage to not have a, an additional home game. I think it's sort of that simple. I don't think... Especially in like the first round, like I don't think the Milwaukee is going to suffer from not having home court in the first right. round of games like Orlando or Brooklyn and probably not even in the second round. But on the whole, I do think, you know, maybe this makes it slightly more likely that a lower seed pulls off the upset because uh, home court isn't a thing. Series that are close will go to seven games. And if I don't know what the percentage is off the top of my head, but I feel like it's at least 75% of game sevens are won by the home team. What I was going to say, too, to answer your question about if it changes anything for specific teams, I think... I don't know how it changes them, but we talked about this yesterday too. And I think the team that I'm most fascinated to watch is Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a team that came in with legitimate championship aspirations. The team I picked at the, in the preseason to win the East. Um, this team went 29 and two at home and 10 and 24 on the road. Like that is an unfathomable home and away split. They're going to get Ben Simmons back. Um, we presume. And, and so I think they're a fascinating case study because they are one to like, without you know with no team having home court advantage and if you assume like do you assume that the Sixers then end up looking like the futile cast of characters who went 10 and 24 on the road or does the fact that no team is really at a road disadvantage mean that their true talent will prevail because you know there's no argument that they can match talent with almost anyone in the league and in a neutral site do they end up actually looking more like the 29 and 2 team that went at home is the is the truth somewhere in the middle and they just are what they are like i don't know but i, I think if you're asking for me if there's a team that this will affect the most i think philly is the most fascinating case study there okay so here's my question then about philly so they have this eight game runway right now mm-hmm. they're in sixth place in a virtual tie with indiana yes do you think they prefer to stay in sixth and avoid milwaukee potentially until the conference finals or do you think they prefer to stay in six it means they have to play boston in the first round I and mean, they've had a lot of success against boston this season i think they went three and one and then potentially get the raptors in round two and wouldn't have to see milwaukee until the conference finals or do you think they prefer to move up potentially get an easier first round series although again like they've had a lot of success against boston so i don't know if they would view playing uh, miami in the first round as an easier first round series and then have to see milwaukee in round two i mean maybe they prefer to stay put yeah i actually do think they should prefer to stay put i think i think their path is a little clearer 
as the six seed than it would be as the five or the four seed. But I, if you look at their schedule, I believe Jacob Goldstein tweeted out the strength of schedules for all the teams based on um, the proposed schedule format. And New Orleans and Philly, I believe, have the easiest schedules. You know, we already knew that with New Orleans. But I think in Philly's case, it is interesting because they may prefer to stay in six, but are they really going to tank a number of games here against a very easy schedule when this isn't like the usual last month of a season or last eight games of a season when you're taking your foot off the gas to ease into the playoffs. This is so different. You've already been off for almost four or five months, whatever it is. I don't think a team like Philly can afford to play with their foot off the gas or get cute with lineups in order to stay in sixth. So I think while they probably do and absolutely should prefer to stay in sixth, I think the schedule is set up in a way that they are going to get into that four or five matchup and set up a second round series with Milwaukee. In which case, I think Milwaukee is probably going to win. <laughs> um, probably, but, but as I've been saying all season, I think Philly is well equipped to defend Milwaukee. I just don't think they're well equipped to score on that Bucks defense. So yeah, I mean, I I'm kind of with you. I don't know that this changes anything as far as how I see things playing out. Um, I think it will end up being the two LA teams in the West and Milwaukee and Toronto in the East. Uh, I'm still picking Clippers and Bucks to make the finals and. That's just such a toss-up to me. I think I would maybe give the slightest of edges to the Clippers, but that's sort of how I've seen it going all season is those two, those two teams in the finals and the Clippers coming away with it uh, by the slimmest of margins. So yeah, And I think for the Clippers too, I mean, we've talked about this. Like They were essentially going to play seven road games if they wound up in the conference finals with the Lakers, and now that won't be the case. And I don't know if that tilts the balance at all in that matchup, but these are well, all things to consider. I mean, they they were gonna play seven road games from a, like a fans perspective, but not from from a travel perspective. They were also right. they them and the Lakers were both gonna play seven home games, right? So I think a really interesting point with the Clippers as well, and we've talked about it like thirty times already this season, is that you know you never know what happens over two years, and then the way these contracts were set up. Um, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard can both be free agents in twenty twenty one, and you know we had already talked about how short that window was and how the Clippers, maybe more than anyone, maybe even more than the Lakers, could not afford to lose one of those two seasons. Well, we also just spent like five minutes earlier in this episode talking about how warped the next year and a half in the NBA is going to be before the reset. So, okay, like the Clippers are an example where they didn't lose a chance to win. You know, they're still just as equipped to win a championship this year and next year as they would have been. But it is such a different league now where if, if say, they don't win in the next year and a half or things pop up just because of how weird the the, the next year and a half is going to be and then they get to 2021 and lose one of those guys i think that'll be that'll be such a tough pill to swallow you know that they they would probably look at it like they didn't get they didn't get quite the shot they envisioned just because of how warped everything was yeah i mean you could say that for for all the top teams yeah. involved milwaukee yeah um and and if say like this is the one title that milwaukee wins in the Giannis era you know how is that title remembered um, right i have another question that's not particularly pertinent, but that it has just been on my mind. Like if, and when a team does win the championship, how are they going to celebrate? Like are, are guys going to be hugging each other? Are they going to be dapping each other up? Like, because I mean, for one thing, I, I know Shams in his report about the return to play proposal. One of the safety precautions was that guys are going to be sitting in spread out rows on the bench, which is like, I get it. I I get why you wouldn't institute that policy. And like, I guess whatever measure you can take to keep people safe, you should take that measure. But it just seems sort of like a flimsy bandaid when 
while those players are in the game, they're going to be like banging in the post, sweating and breathing all over each other. And so like, okay, like a team wins the championship and like is hugging prohibited. Like I know I haven't been watching the soccer because I'm I'm just not really a soccer fan, but uh, a friend of mine who had been watching it said like when somebody scores a goal in soccer, everyone just kind of stands around in a circle clapping. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> even the, in in soccer, like one of the one of the most famous things is like, well, I shouldn't say most famous, but one of the the usual things you see in soccer is at the end of a match, if a team has won, they'll pan to the the crowd where like the you know the executives sit and the managers and the presidents and stuff, and they usually give you like a little, uh, sh- like they shake hands depending on which country it is. You might even see them do the the double kiss, the European double kiss. And during this time, you just see these suits doing the like elbow bump instead so yeah i think it's gonna be different but that actually goes to what i was gonna say to answer your question on my opinion is i went on that whole rant about why i think this year's champion should absolutely not have an asterisk but i do think whoever wins while i don't think history history should value them any less or undervalue them i do think for them personally it'll just never be the same as winning a, a championship in a regular year because as you mentioned the celebration is going to be muted even if they can celebrate amongst each other there's not going to be a parade or at least mm-hmm. not the type of parade we're used to zoom and, parade baby yeah for, for real and and also just the whole point of like a four-week offseason part of the you know basking in the glow of your championship win is you get that that offseason to kind of sit back and think about what you just accomplished and you know not I know that teams do quickly go into the next year and and planning and all that. So it's not like they just sit around doing nothing for two months, but four weeks is a very short period of time. And I just don't know how much like champions a team will feel if they don't get to celebrate it in the normal way. And then a month later, they're back in training camp, you know? So while as Kawhi said after the championship last year, he was just going to be drinking alcohol and eating desserts all the time. So I don't know if that'll be able to happen in the four week window we've got. Exactly. So I think, uh, I I think that's an important point you raised about the celebrations and it's like funny in a way, but it's also for the team that wins, that will suck. They, they will be a real champion, but I'm sure from a celebratory standpoint, they won't feel like it. Anything else you want to address before we sign off here? Again, I'm, you know, very cautious with all the health stuff and I, you know, I don't want to get too excited or make it seem like we're oblivious to the health and safety concerns. Again, I definitely don't want it to seem like we're oblivious to everything we just spoke about on a podcast a couple of days ago because we're not at all. But from from the standpoint of watching and covering basketball and and hopefully being able to enjoy it, the logistical nightmare is there. But if there's a if they can find a way to pull this off, I really do think it could be a really 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 special couple months from a basketball perspective. I think it would be really really cool if after all this time without sports and basketball, you know, the NBA of all things comes back and it's almost in like this March Madness format, not from a single elimination perspective or with the crazy fans, but from like the perspective of you might be able to watch wall to wall NBA basketball, you know, like think of the way it is on Christmas day or the way the NBA schedules games on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. You know, imagine if that's just like, if that's what you get for the first two weeks after not having the NBA for five months, that could be really electric. So I right. hope everything goes well, obviously. And I and I do think, again, all those caveats being what they are, for that eight-game regular season runway that's been approved, I mean, we're going to get some pretty good games. Like, the, there are still some not-so-great teams, you know, like Washington, uh, Phoenix, even San Antonio, like Sacramento, those teams are pretty meh. But for the most part, these are going to be games between quality teams and most of them are going to have something at stake so i think you know compared to the usual dreck that we get at the end of the season 
we might actually see a pretty entertaining product. And I do hope that we get to see it because again, if we don't, it'll mean something has gone wrong. And I think priority number one for everybody involved just needs to be staying healthy and staying safe. Um, So that's, you know, if they're going to go ahead with this, I I not sold that it's the right idea, but if they're going to push ahead with this, then I can only hope that they manage to see it through to its conclusion because that will mean that they've, that they've done it in a manner that uh, is at least relatively safe. Yep. I'm with you. So with that, uh, we're going to sign off and we'll talk to you sometime next week for Joseph Cacharo. I'm Joe Wolfon. Thank you.